Coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field, it's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. Moses, thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's good to see you back in the studio. How are you doing on this beautiful day? I guess I'm doing all right. Had a good weekend. My wife and I got to go down by the lake and we did some fishing together. Fishing with your wife? That's that's actually pretty cool. Um, did you catch anything? Well, we don't really fish to catch things. What do you, it's more what, fishing just to... Have some time to talk. Oh, I, I get it. Sometimes we catch dinner. Yeah? You get anything this time? Like, uh... We tried, but... Well, like, it it didn't work out very well. What, so... What happened? We just had a good talk. Okay. Well, that works. Good to have some quality time with your spouse out there on the lake. But Moses, since we have you in here, this month's winner of our five-star review contest is John. And John is another listener out in Florida. Go ahead and read John's five-star review for us, Moses. I learned so much listening to this show. I was shocked by things talked about in it. It's all true. Crazy. All right, thank you, John in Florida, for that review. If you'd like to have your review read on the air, it must be a five-star review. Just get onto the Derek Izzy Show on iTunes. Scroll down to the very bottom where you can write a review and do that. Moses will read your review on the air if you are selected. All right, once again, thank you, John in Florida, for that wonderful review. And now, the topic of today's podcast. Born in British Columbia, the topic of today's podcast came south to the United States. Growing up as a child, he lived a very interesting life. Upon landing in the United States, his family got a home in Washington. Not Washington, D.C., the state of Washington. They moved into a trailer park. In his early childhood years, the topic of our podcast struggled. He was picked on in school. He lashed out against fellow classmates. He was the middle child in his family. He had two brothers and two sisters and an abusive alcoholic father. One of the disciplinary actions his father took against him when he was a young child was administering electronic shocks to get him to behave. He was always tall as a child, and you know how kids are. That caused him to be ridiculed by a lot of his classmates. At a young age, he developed 
an attraction to torturing animals. As young as five or six years old, this torture started. Around the trailer park, gophers were found with their heads bashed in. Keep in mind, we're talking about a six-year-old here, killing gophers in the trailer park. It escalated to cats and dogs. Some of the reported stories I have are of him nailing cats to a board. He would hang that board up, nail a cat to the board, and then throw knives at it. This was his form of entertainment as a young child. He would lash out at neighbors. At the age of nine, he reportedly called a woman, an adult woman, a bitch, and her 16-year-old son reacted by going up to the nine-year-old and beating the crap out of him. But that didn't stop him. He continued with outrageous acts throughout his childhood. At one point during an interview, he describes the torture of animals by saying, I was Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was like I was playing war. When I looked at those dogs, they would squat and pee. They'd be so scared that they'd tremble. He was inspired by that fear, this fear that the animals felt that drove him to torture and kill more animals, started to wager in his mind, and he began to think about other ways he could instill fear. He started to think about humans. If he could wrap his hands around the neck of a dog and strangle the dog to death, being in complete control over the life of that animal, could that translate into humans? Would it feel the same way? Would humans fear him the same way that animals do? In one quote, he said, You come to the point where killing something is nothing. You've already felt the pressure on the throat of them trying to grab air. You're actually squeezing the life out of these animals, and there isn't much difference. They're going to fight for their lives just as much as a human being will. This curiosity to find out if humans would feel the same fear and respect him like the animals did, this feeling grew in him throughout his later childhood. When he was 10 years old, he got into a fight with another child. He beat this child until the boy was unconscious. The topic of our podcast continued to beat the child and claims that he would have killed the child had his father not stepped in and pulled him off. When he was 11 years old, he decided to take revenge against a child who had previously bullied him. This happened in a public swimming pool. In order to get revenge on this bully, he decided to grab the child by his hair and hold his head underwater. The boy was gasping for air, completely in fear and afraid for the loss of his life. This feeling drove the topic of our podcast to continue to hold him underwater until a much older lifeguard jumped in and intervened. This addiction to power and this want to be feared continued to grow. Around age 12, the father of the topic of our podcast gave him a BB gun. And what did he do with that? There was an overweight neighbor in the trailer park bending over to pick raspberries. He took the opportunity to shoot the neighbor. And then later on, he took his BB gun and decided to shoot a second neighbor, except this time he shot this neighbor in the groin. His desire for power and control and to prove that people couldn't control him continued to grow. At the age of 13 and into 14, he started his criminal exploits. He shot an arrow at one of his teachers. He started shoplifting. 
and he became interested in setting fires. At the age of 14, he had sex for the first time, but he describes it as rape. He started experimenting with bombs. At the age of 16 or 17, his only friend was his dog. Dog's name was Duke. While the topic of our podcast did enjoy killing and torturing animals, Duke was completely different. Duke was his best friend and a loyal companion that he would do anything to protect. When his dad killed Duke, saying that Duke wasn't doing very well, looked like he had gotten into some poison and eaten it, so his dad shot and killed Duke, that was one of the breaking points for the topic of our podcast. Going into his later years of high school, he struggled. His IQ was reportedly 102. He was one of the slow kids. You can imagine the torment being one of the larger kids in the class. He was bullied and tormented for that. Having a low IQ, being known as the stupid kid, this only led him to desire more and more power and control over everyone. Despite all this, the topic of our podcast managed to find a wife. He got married and actually had kids. But with a lot of the issues he had, marriage was a difficult thing. While he did seem to be an attentive father when he was there. He had a job as a long-haul trucker, so his time at home was very short. He spent most of his time on the road, and when he did return home, he seemed to be a good father. But this kind of life, the married life, with a wife and kids and a normal, normal family, was not the kind of life that someone like this can handle. So in 1990, he was divorced. Now, the marriage had been falling apart before 1990, but 1990 also happened to be when he decided to execute his first victim. Transitioning that desire from killing and torturing animals over to killing and torturing human beings to see if the power felt the same is where we will go to after this short break. What are you having for dinner tonight? Are you ordering dinner? Are you going out to a restaurant? Are you going to make dinner at home? Blue Apron allows you to cook gourmet, restaurant-quality food right at home. And it's less than $10 per person. It's an excellent bonding experience for a family. If it's just a husband and wife or two wives or two husbands and one kid, whatever your household is, Blue Apron is a bonding experience. You get the whole family together. They ship you a box of ingredients They ship you an instruction list, so you have directions on how to prepare every meal, and you have pictures. It is so easy, and the food that you will create is delicious. When you get your meal kit, you open it up, everything is portioned already, you just have to cut things up, follow the directions to put it all together. Average meal takes anywhere between 20 minutes and 40 minutes to prepare, and they're actually pretty healthy meals. Your average serving is going to be anywhere between 400 and maybe 800 calories. And it's good tasting food. I do it myself. And uh, let me let me get you a, a list of some of the things that I've made that I never thought I would be eating. But until I started ordering Blue Apron, now I'm open to all these things. Okay, one of my favorites here was the Swiss cheese patty melts. Now, when it comes to sandwiches, few things satisfy quite like a beefy, cheesy patty melt. I mean, these are good. But Blue Aprons are layered with melted Swiss, Dijon mustard, and shallots cooked with a bit of 
Worcestershire sauce. It adds a little bit to the flavor. So you've got that with your roasted potato wedges, and it's delicious. It's something you would see in a restaurant, but they make it easy for you to prepare at home. How about cherry glazed chicken? That's another one. Now, that one's pretty easy. They give you a sour cherry spread, give you some butter, and it makes a unique glaze for the chicken. They send you collard greens and potatoes with a creme and garlic sauce. Turns it into restaurant-quality food. And just, I mean, looking at the picture, I know I've had this before, so I know how good it is. But looking at the picture, I mean, it just brings back the memories. And these are memories that you can create with your family. Bringing the kids, bringing the significant others in, and just making it together. It's impossible to fail. If you want your discount by listening to The Derek Izzy Show, you go to blueapron.com slash izzy. blueapron.com slash izzi, and you will get $30 off your first order. $30 off your first order, blueapron.com slash izzy. And I want to thank you in advance because when you go to blueapron.com slash izzy and place that first order, you get the show paid. When you get the show paid, we can do more episodes and give you more entertainment going forward. So thank you in advance. Go to blueapron.com slash izzy. So the topic of our podcast, being a long-haul trucker, he introduces himself to a woman at a bar. This is up near Portland, Oregon. He invites her to a house that he's renting. Now, his original idea was to bring her back and have sex with her. That was not what her plan was. So when she refused, he became enraged. He started punching her. She tried to fight back, but it was no use. He punched her and choked her until she was dead. Upon doing this, he still had the frame of mind to go back to the bar and have a few drinks, thus setting up an alibi for himself. When he returned to his house, he disposed of her body. A few days later, the body was discovered, but with no suspects and no leads, the investigation went nowhere. The topic of our podcast decided to lay low for a while. The feeling from his first victim kept him going for a while. It was over two years before he felt the need to kill again. In California in 1992, the body of an unidentified woman was found in Blythe, California. She had been raped and strangled. A month later, in Turlock, California, another body was discovered. She had also been raped and strangled. Now the desire is becoming overwhelming for the topic of our podcast. Six months later, another victim is found, and yet no arrests have been made, and there have been no suspects related to the topic of our podcast. The victims he had been choosing had mostly been prostitutes, similar to other serial killers. When you kill a prostitute, the police investigation generally doesn't go anywhere. What makes our story a little bit more interesting is that upon investigation of the very first murder, there is now a confession. A confession? Did the topic of our podcast confess to his first murder? Not exactly. Laverne Pavlinak was in an abusive relationship with her boyfriend, John. She was struggling to find a way to get out of this abusive relationship. She decided that the best way to do that was to confess to the first murder that the topic of our podcast committed by saying that she and her boyfriend did it together. 
and that she was forced to participate under duress, being threatened by her boyfriend. Now, in, in her mind, that seemed perfectly logical because they, she could bring this information to the police, the police would arrest her boyfriend, and then she would say that he was abusive and he forced her to do it, and then she would be let go, and then he would be in prison. I mean, her idea sounds, sounds logical. He would go to prison, then she wouldn't have to worry about him abusing her ever again, and she was out of the relationship. But that is not what happened. They were both convicted of murder. In order to avoid the death penalty, her boyfriend pleaded guilty because he was sure he was going to be convicted. He was sentenced to life in prison. Laverne, she was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Now keep in mind, they didn't do anything, but she had confessed to the murder to implicate her abusive boyfriend and get rid of him. After she was convicted and sent to prison, she recanted her confession but nobody believed her. News of this conviction hit the press. Reports that the murder had finally been solved came out through the news in the newspapers, on TV, and the topic of our podcast, the real killer of this victim, became jealous. That was something that he did. He had earned the right to be known as the murderer of that victim, and he was enraged. This fueled him even more than before. Being a long-haul trucker, he would stop at rest stops to take a break and use the restroom. At one of these rest stops, he wrote a detailed confession about the murder of his first victim, and he signed it with a smiley face. When this did not get him the attention that he desired, his note in the restroom, the one he signed with a smiley face, here's what it said. I killed Tanya Bennett. January 21st, 1990, in Portland, Oregon. I beat her to death, raped her, and loved it. Yes, I'm sick, but I enjoy myself too. People took the blame, and I'm free. Turns out he wrote a similar message on several restroom walls, signing every message with a happy face. Every letter that he sent to the press, because he wanted attention for these murders, a happy face signed to each letter. One of his potential victims was Dawn Schlegel. She was 21 at the time. She had just had a big argument with her husband. She grabbed her infant son and left. It was nearby at a shopping center where she ran into the topic of our podcast. It was cold outside, and he offered her a ride. He could be charming when he wanted to. And this woman was vulnerable at the time, just having an argument with her husband and very frustrated and upset. She wanted to get out of the cold, so she made the decision to get into his car. Now, during an interview she did for the news, I'll let you hear it in her words, what happened. Um, I was actually sitting in a parking lot in Mount Shasta. I'd had a, um, a fight with my husband, so... Um, it was about 10 at night, and I decided to take the baby down to the only well-lit place I knew was the shopping center. And it wasn't too long before I noticed that, you know, I just had a feeling that someone was watching me. And then he just decided to walk up to me, which I was hoping he wouldn't do, but, um, but he did. And uh, 
you know, he started talking to me as we kept talking, you know, he started to go into how he was having, how he had problems with his wife and that he had just gotten separated and he missed his kids. At that point, I had to go to the bathroom. I asked him, can you take me for a drive? I made a mistake. So he, uh, he took me for a drive just, you know, outside of town area. Um, there was a little turnabout place and, um, was just going to run out and go to the bathroom. As soon as I came back into the car, he disappears and goes out into the woods. And I don't see him for a long time. He starts the car, and instead of backing out, he pulls forward into the brush deeper. Now I know I'm in trouble. He slammed my face up against the window, um, and he started trying to break my neck. And, I mean, I'm flying around the front seat, you know, and this is like in seconds. So I'm, I'm not, now I'm really caught off guard and I'm, I'm really in trouble. The baby falls off of my lap onto the floorboard. I'm trying to get out of this chokehold. I'm trying to get, um, you know, it wasn't like a strangulation. It was, he was literally trying to break my neck and I could feel so much pressure on, on my bones that I just knew that if, if he got just a little bit more that it was going to break. And so every time he would go to, to break, I would lean into it, you know, so that he couldn't get that extra, extra leverage. And he was getting frustrated because he couldn't do it. And I'm screaming, you know, what the hell do you think you're doing? I mean, what are you trying to do here? It's like, stop, stop. The only thing I could think to do was to take this uh, physical altercation and turn it into a mental altercation. It had to go there. Um, I had to find some way to get him off his game, some way to confuse him for a second, um, to stop him. Finally, I got to pick him up, and, um, and he was breathing. You know, he was okay. And I held him really, really close to me, and I just, I promised him. I said, you know, wherever we're going, we're going to go together. When he was in the process of the attack, um, he was a monster. The look on his face, he was, he was a monster. But as he did this metamorphosis again, it was like he changed back, um, started the car. I didn't know what was happening at this point. I didn't know what his intentions were at this point. We're getting closer and closer to this freeway entrance. And um, he turns and looks at me and he says, he says, don't ever get in the car with somebody you don't know again because it might be the last thing that you ever do. Apparently, he was taken down at gunpoint, and they, they took him in, and he gave a statement, and he actually admitted to, uh, you know, putting his hands around my throat. I thought about it, and I, I wanted to press charges. And they said, well, it's too late. We've already let him go. I had a lot of survivor's guilt, you know, when I found out about all the other women. Finally, I had to, I had to just, you know, kind of accept the core of things and deal with the right now. And you just have to pick up and say, this is where I am right now. What do I need to do? Straight from the mouth of one of the survivors of the attacks of the topic of today's podcast. Several of his murders occurred along the I-5 corridor. This famous area where we had the I-5 killer. Some of his killings stretched into the Green River killer's territory. So there was a lot going on when you consider who to look for as far as the suspect goes. And she went to the police. She went to the police and he was arrested, but the fact that she was impaired 
and his version of the story seemed much more believable. She had claimed that he was trying to break her neck, like, like she said in the interview, and that's not what he said happened. His version of the story was that her neck was getting twisted because they were having sex in the car, and there just wasn't enough space, and that's why she was having neck issues, because of the cramped space area, and they were having sex. Reasonable explanation. But even though the police believed his story over hers, and the evidence seemed to support what he was saying happened, which was not an attempted murder, charges were still filed against him for sexual assault. He failed to appear in court. A warrant was issued for his arrest. He was arrested in the state of Iowa. The arrest happened at a weight check station after they ran his name in the National Crime Information Center database. They found the outstanding warrant from the state of California. However, the warrant was too weak, so the charge was reduced to a misdemeanor. And after that happened, the cost of extradition just wasn't worth it, and he was exonerated of all charges. So here we have his very first murder. There was a false confession, so he doesn't get credit for that one. And then this attempted murder, due to some coincidental circumstances, he's now free from this one as well. So he's now got three murders in the books that we've talked about. His fourth murder was a prostitute who wanted to charge him double the price for the sex that they had had. When she raised her price after they had sex, he lost it. She threatened to call the police on him, and he murdered her. A year later, murder number five. A year after that, murder number six. Her body was found in Crestview, Florida. Four months later, murder number seven. This was a girl he picked up in the state of Washington, and she actually rode with him in his truck for a week. He was giving her a ride to the state of Indiana to be with her boyfriend. He was taking his time along the trip, and she was in a hurry to see her boyfriend. And eventually the nagging of going faster, go faster, I need to get to see my boyfriend. Eventually it overwhelmed him. He raped her and choked her to death. Realizing that someone might actually miss this girl, she wasn't the typical prostitute that he would normally go after. He didn't want anyone to be able to identify her body. So after he raped and killed her, he tied her body underneath his truck, face down to the road, so that as the truck drove, her skin would be ground off by the road. This brutal method of killing, that's the first I've heard of that actually happening. That sounds like something you would see in a movie. Granted, she was that wasn't how he killed her. She was already dead at the point when he tied her body underneath his truck. But to go to those extremes to avoid her body being identified, that puts him in a new category. Two months later, murder number eight. This was actually his fiance, and after being together for a while, planning on getting married, he found out that she was only interested in his money. Now, he wasn't that wealthy, but to someone who has absolutely no money, he seemed like somebody who would be able to provide a means of support. Being as she was his fiance, he was now connected to this murder. He was arrested, and police questioned him. The questioning went for six hours. Upon realizing that he was caught and his killing spree was over, he wrote a long letter to his brother Brad where he gave a detailed confession of every single murder. 
After writing the letter, he confessed to the detectives who arrested him about killing his former fiance. His brother Brad turned over the letter to police. Almost a year later, another victim's body was found based on the details that were given by our killer's confession. Upon getting arrested and put in jail, realizing his crime spree was over, he still wanted attention, and he confessed to killing 160 people. Now, later on, he recanted most of that, and it looks like his total victim list came to eight. In October and November of 1995, the topic of our podcast pleaded guilty to several murders and received a sentence of life in prison. While in prison, he still relished the attention that he got. He was banned from receiving guests and doing in-person interviews because he relished the attention, and that's what he wanted. He wanted people to know his story. His daughter actually wrote a book, and she's been on several news programs talking about having a father who was a serial killer. And just to give you an idea of what kind of cold heart this killer has, here's an interview, one of the few interviews that was actually done with him after he was already in prison. This is a news interview, and you can hear the callousness in his voice. He's very matter-of-fact about what he did, and he's definitely, definitely come to grips with it, and I'll let you hear it for yourself. Straight from the mouth of the happy-faced killer himself, here is Keith Jesperson describing his actions. I picked up a woman at a bar, took her home. We were drinking beer a lot that day. Took her home. I thought I was going to get lucky. Comments were made and different things, and and, uh, an altercation happened, and I struck her. I actually had hit her in the face, and for some reason, I just kept on hitting her in the face. And because of that, I I feared going to prison for slugging her in the face and causing bodily injury, and so I killed her. Oh, yes, I did. I meant to kill her to cover up the assault. It is matter of fact that that's what it is. And I put the body up there in the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, I had tied a rope around its neck, mostly to... I didn't know how the body reacted when you started moving it. I'm sorry it happened. Wish it never happened. And can we move on? I mean, come on. I mean, it's done. It's over with. Yes, I'd like to go back in time and change it and make it all go away and make it all peaches and cream again, but I can't do that. At the time, I could justify each and every one of those murders, and at this time, I cannot. I want to thank everyone for listening. Make sure you get out there, write your five-star review on iTunes. Scroll down to the bottom of the podcast, click that button that says Write Review. Give us a five-star review, and if you're selected, your review will be read live on the air by Moses Ronald himself. Again, thanks for listening. Make sure you tell your friends, tell your family. We need to continue to grow our listening audience and support the sponsors that support the show. The way you can do that, get some delicious food. Go to blueapron.com slash Izzy, blueapron.com slash I-Z-Z-I. Get your $30 off your first order and enjoy some gourmet cooked food. Restaurant quality prepared by you following their easy-to-follow instructions, and you'll have delicious food just like I do. BlueApron.com slash Izzy, because this has been The Derek Izzy Show, and now you know the rest of the story. Good day.